I don't ever want to assume that even as a mature group that we fully understand the basics or that we maybe have forgotten the basics or maybe we've just forgotten to realize the basics are still important. So this morning, a lot of this stuff, you, in fact, all of this stuff I am sure you will have heard, but I just want to remind us of it again that this is still the important stuff, um, especially with what's going on in the world today. You watch the rancor going on, the arguments going on, the disagreements going on, on the political end, on the social end, and we sometimes, as Christians, get very frustrated. And sometimes we want to just be angry and throw up our hands and go, oh, the world's going to pot, right? I mean, how many of you feel that way at times, right? How many of you feel that way? We need to remember what it was like in Christ's time. We think it's bad here in the U.S. where we have a lot of freedom. He was in the middle of what civilization? The Roman civilization, and they had no freedom. Most of them were slaves. And so it would have been much like this in his time. And he rose above that to say, why are you here? What do I want you to do? And so although it's not on your page to start with, I'm going to remind us, where does the Great Commission occur? If you were going to look it up, somebody asked you, what are we really here? Why do we really exist as Christians? What would you say? And it might be, hey, it's the Great Commission. Where would you look that up if you couldn't remember it directly? Matthew 28. So somebody look up the Great Commission and read it to us. I'm going to have you guys participate a little bit in reading Scripture today. So some of these Scriptures you see on the page, somebody wants to be ready to jump in and read them. Somebody got Matthew 28? Who's got Matthew 28 that can read it? Verses, I think, what, 19 and 20? Is that the Great Commission? Somebody read us the Great Commission. There you go, ma'am. Get, jump in. Go and make, what? Go and make disciples. To make a disciple means that that person has to come into alignment with your thinking. Somebody who wants to follow Jesus. We must know how to do that well if we're going to go and make disciples. And then it says, and then go and, and teach them to do all that I have commanded you. So how will they know what truth is? The world has lost grasp on what truth is. USA Today in uh, Thursday or Friday edition said in the middle, it was interesting, this one sentence in the middle of this, uh, of this uh, piece that they were writing an opinion piece on, and it was about the fact that we're at the end of the one-year uh, anniversary of the Me Too movement. I can't believe it's been a year, but the, anyway, they were writing about that, and they said, the United States populace knows what sin looks like or what sin is. And I thought, that's an interesting statement. Number one, to even use the word sin in the USA Today, I thought was unusual because sin is known only because of what book the bible so you know they all want to say bible has nothing to do with us anymore and yet they go the world's or the, the united states populace knows what and i thought no they don't they don't know what truth is they're saying that the populace would know when women are being abused that that's sin and they should but yet it's awful easy to walk away and look at other things and i thought if the populace knew what sin was Abortion wouldn't exist. If the populace knew what sin was, fill in the blank. There's a lot of stuff that the populace does not know. The only way you know truth is how. Truth is, I've told you this before, truth is what God says. 
Class, what is truth? What God says. Not what we think, but what God says. That's a basic piece. Again, this is all ahead of even getting into the notes here. I just want you to be aware of why this is important. We need to rise above. God has called us. Christ has called us to something other than this arguments that we want to have. It's not that we don't want to have good discourse, but we need to realize what we're about, what work we're about, what we as disciples are about. So um, God expects us, and yet first blank, God expects us to be, by the way, I was going to bring electronic and I forgot to bring my uh, laptop, so you don't get it as Cliff shows it to you up there. But anyway, you have to fill in the blanks. God expects us to be, what does it say as scouts? Be, be prepared, those of you in scouts. God expects us to be prepared. What's 1 Peter 3.15 say there? Anybody got 3.15? It's just a real quick, it says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Give a reason for the hope that it, always be prepared. How do you get prepared? What are the basics? You got to ask yourself, why am I here? I exist because of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. By the way, the end of that says, and what does it say? And lo, I will be with you to the end of the ages. My wife uses that, by the way, to say that's why we're not flying. God says to be low, not high. Low I am with you, not high I am with you. But that's how I always remember that verse. But um, in, in any case, we need to recognize that God calls us to be prepared. That's number one. And secondly, that God then provides us with all that we need from Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is one that you probably should know. All Scripture is... God breathed and is useful for what? Useful, all scriptures God breathed and, and profitable for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God is thoroughly equipped. God gives us scripture for that purpose. It's all God breathed. It's all useful. We don't need to use things outside of scripture. That's number one. God gives us the scripture to use. Number two, God says, I'm going to give you power through bathing everything in prayer. It is in your prayer life that you gain power. This is something that I particularly struggle with. I am one of those people that, you know, I'm an engineer. It's all logic to me, and I all want to look and go, it makes sense, A, B, C, D, right? And I think I can think my way through it. And I forget that God's ways are not man's ways. I need to tap into God's ways through prayer all the time. So whenever you get ready to make disciples, whenever you get ready to teach them to do everything I've commanded you, we must always go and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? What, I'm just the mouthpiece. I'm just the steward. I'm only going to be using scripture to try to help this person because it's your scripture that's going to do it for them, not what I have to say. Again, I'm just reminding us of what we already know. We've thought about this before, but it's part of the basic package, right? Um, God expects us then that, that uh, under what would be your number four there, God expects us to know and to be able to use scripture again to timothy this time in second timothy 2 15 do your best to present yourself to god as what as a workman who is not ashamed and who correctly knows how to handle what the word of truth the word of god do your best to present yourself to god as a workman, if you are going to be, I don't know what your work is, but if, if I were going to be a carpenter, I better really be good with a hammer. Now anymore, it's all automated. But at one time, I remember framing a house with a man who was highly competent with a hammer, and I thought, it looks easy. 
You know, what are you going to do? Swing the hammer. At the end of the first couple hours of swinging the hammer, my arm was about to fall off. And he was just patting, and he would take a nail and drive it within about three strokes, and I was about 15. And I thought, there's the difference of experience and practice. If we are going to be good at using scripture, what must we do? We must learn it, which is what we're doing in here, but we also must apply it. We must use it. If we never use it, we don't find out what works for us, what doesn't work. And it's okay. There's many times we fail. I have given given a, a teaching like this and thought, oh, it's terrible. I just, you know, it was, it was flat or whatever. I just didn't feel right to me. And yet I had people come up and they'd go, oh, wow, your message really hit me. And I thought, it couldn't have been me. It could not have been me. It had to have been God's word. <laughs> and I don't know how many of you teach, but if you do, one of the odd things that happens, happens to me all the time. Somebody will come up and go, wow, when you said this, it really... In other words, I had these three major points that I was going to make, and this person comes up and says, well, when you said this, this really affected me, and I thought, I don't even remember saying that. Anybody ever have that experience? It's not about us. It's about God's word and the power of that word. But God expects us to be able to use it. So I wrote down a couple things here. Again, just to remind ourselves, Scripture is powerful. Scripture is powerful. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. Man, that was, their, that was the sword they wanted to use, a two-edged sword. Able to uh, pierce even to the, to the marrow, even to the, the dividing asunder the joints. And anybody who's ever trimmed beef you know, knows that it's, a, it's those ligaments. It's a tough thing to try to trim out that and you want something really sharp. And it's really just saying that the word of God can get in and really pierce into somebody's heart, into those hardened places in their own soul, and twist them to where they really start to think about it. We think that we have to be highly persuasive in what we say and how we use words, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, that's not where the power is. The power is in the scripture. Here's a truth that I learned from another mentor when you're counseling somebody. The greatest thing that you can do is lead them in to a scripture or two that deals with a principle around their issue, whatever that issue is, and then not add a whole lot more to it. Let them ruminate on what the word says. You don't know how God's working in their heart. Encourage them to go look at some additional scripture, but you don't have to add a bunch of extra words to it. I used to think all this extra stuff had to be added in. And I found out the most effective way of counseling is getting somebody started in the word and just showing them, here's what God says. Asking them what they think, but here's what God says. Um, and then the second thing I put there, Scripture will always work. What's Isaiah 55.11 say? Somebody, let, somebody look up Isaiah 55.11 and read that to us, just to remind ourselves. Again, another basic Scripture. Who's got 55? Can you look it up? Okay, yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Will my word be which goes forth from my mouth? It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. My word will not come back void or empty. But it will accomplish the purpose for which it went out for. We need to remind ourselves of that. Don't get into extra stuff. The word will handle it. The word will handle it. So, again, these are just basic reminders of whenever we as workmen are handling the word of truth, working with somebody, working maybe on ourselves, just to show ourselves, hey, what should I be doing in this situation? that we don't need to do anything other than Scripture. This Scripture will do it for us. Does that make sense? Any amens out there? It's awful easy to get off into, I need to say more. I need to say something else. Um, 
Okay, so into what I really wanted to discuss today, and that's again the basics of how do I give the gospel message? How do I give a gospel message? What is the gospel message? What is, and gospel stands for good news. What is the good news? So, a couple of things first. Why do I need good news? If I'm going to, if I, if I'm talking to somebody, having a conversation, they're unsaved, you know, their neighbor maybe, and they're really lost, and and you start going into things like, and you got to be careful the words you use. You need, to go, you need to be saved. You need to accept Christ. Why? That person's thinking, why do I need to do that? How would you think through that? What is the problem? that exists in the world today. And by the way, a scripture that's not written down, there's 2 Corinthians 2.14. You might want to jot this down because it's important to realize that an unsaved person does not have spiritual eyesight. They don't understand the things that you do that the Spirit is illuminating to you. They're only going to get illuminated into things that are really all about salvation. That's what the Spirit's trying to draw them into. So 2 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, the man who does not know Christ, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. So the natural man, the man who doesn't know Christ, remember that they're not going to see things in the same way that you do. My... The, the man who led me to Christ happened to be my childhood dentist. I was in my 20s, now mid-20s. He was teaching a Bible study. I went to it. And he said, his gospel message that he said every time, by the way, he, he died about a month ago and led thousands to Christ. He was one of those guys. But he always said every time before he started speaking, if you're here today and you can't say with assurance that you're a Christian, that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your primary need is not to study the Bible today. Your primary need is to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, I go, well, there's not much. I look back and I go, there's not a whole lot of gospel message in there. That's just a straightforward statement. But I want you to know that Terry was standing there, sitting there, and for my entire life, I had asked the question, why do we exist? It doesn't make sense to me. The world doesn't make sense that we just are born, live, have children die, and it moves on. That, and, and the Spirit said to me in that moment, this is the answer to your question you've been asking. I heard it as clearly as if you were sitting next to me speaking to me today. I didn't understand it, but when he said, you need to accept Christ, I said, I am all in. If that's the answer, I'm all in. Now, I so little knew what I was all into that I accepted Christ every day for at least six months. <laughs> at least before I had any idea that I didn't have to do that but one time. So again, let the Spirit work, but we should know what the gospel is and why it exists. So I'm going to go back to another basic thing. I think I've shared this with a class before. But if you are going to say one thing that, the, that Scripture is all about, this is the one theme that Scripture, if I look at the whole Bible, all the way through Scripture, it's all about, what would you say is one theme, one word, one sentence, to say this is all, everything in the Bible follows this? What would you say? Restoration, okay? Love, that's certainly a... Grace comes out. Forgiveness. What else? Jesus. Jesus through the whole scriptures, right? Here's an interesting piece. All of those words, all of those thoughts, I think, revolve around one idea. And it goes all the way back to Genesis when it says, let us the Trinity, that was an, it's interesting the way it's stated, let us make man in what? Our own image, Imago Deo, in the image of God. We're the only created thing that God created in his image. So we're special, we're different. But it then goes on to say, you know, to, to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, it does all of this. And God, when he started with Adam and Eve, what did he do with them? Before they sinned, what did he do? 
He came down. Heaven is where God is. So heaven came down and in the garden walked. He walked with Adam and Eve. Can we imagine what that was like? We can't imagine. We get to do that, by the way. That's happening again. Revelation tells us that God's gonna, heaven's going to come back down. New heaven and new earth will be joined together, and God will again walk with us. We get to do that again. But he got to walk with them, and it really shows me that his initial purpose was God wanted a close, personal relationship with each one of us. That's what God desires. He desired it when he created us. He desired it when he first walked with us. And then, like a big parenthetical comma, and then a clause in the middle, and then man sinned. And all of a sudden, there was a problem. What was the problem? Separation. God could not have a close personal relationship with us because we now had sin in our life, and God can't be around sin. So God said, I still want a close personal relationship with you. And the only way that can happen is if you live, uh, live a sinless life. And that doesn't happen very well with man. We are born into sin, and we sin every day of our life. And so God says, I'll never get to have that again under the current conditions. Knowing that man is incapable of leading a sinless life, I will provide the solution. I will send my son, Jesus Christ, to lead that sinless life, be the sacrifice for everybody else. And if you believe that and accept that, that that is the only way back to me, then we can again have a close, personal relationship. That's the theme that I think the whole Bible does. Forgiveness falls into that. Christ falls into that. Everything's about that. And at the end, God says, in eternity, I want to have a close, personal relationship with each one of you. That's why we have good news. The good news is, even though we've messed it up, God has a way to join us back together. That's what the good news is about. Do you remember, and, and in fact, if we got excited about, if we really got excited about understanding what we've got a hold of, you know, we get fearful to talk to our neighbors and so forth because I don't think we fully understand what, what, what God's done for us. But when he sent the 72 out, I think it was Luke 10, he sends the 72 out and he tells them, you know, go to the different cities and if they don't accept the message, you know, brush off your feet, dust off your shoes and move on. But what was interesting to me is at the end when the 72 came back, what did they say? Anybody remember what the 72 said? Even the, even the demons submit to us. Man, we're excited. We got all this power. And they came back and they were so excited. And what did Christ say to them? It's really interesting what he said to them. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. He goes and says he deflates their balloon big time. What does he say? Don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. Don't rejoice? I'm all excited. You know, I'm psyched up. Look at that. Look at the power I've got. Isn't that us? Isn't that me? Isn't that the way we are? Look at the power you've given me, Lord, to go out and preach the gospel. I've got the answers. It's all about me. See, that's what the disciples were saying. It's all about me. Look at what I can do. And he goes, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice why? That your name is written in the book of life, the book of remembrance. That book, the Lamb's book of God, that's the book that when you get to heaven, it's going to be the culling of the goats and the sheep, right? They're going to look and say, you in the book of, you don't start off in the book of remembrance or the book of life. Your name is written there when you accept Christ. If it's written there, then you don't face the great white throne judgment. 
you get to spend eternity with God. That's about the book of life. And Christ says that's the only reason you should be excited. You want to be excited about some, something as you go out to minister? So that even if somebody martyrs you, even if somebody kicks you, even if somebody, as Paul was, beats you, you go, doesn't bother me. I rejoice for only one reason. I rejoice because my name is written in the book of life. When you go out to preach the gospel, when you go out to share the gospel, when you go out to share Christ's love, when you go out to do anything, remember it's for only one reason that you rejoice. I'm already there. I'm trying to help you get there too. I'm so excited about understanding where I am I want to help you get there also. I can't imagine heaven without you being there. Does that make sense? That's a big deal. That's a frame of reference that I think we miss sometimes. So um, where was I? Oh, so we, we, were, uh, the, we were talking about that next piece that I've written on your thing called opening questions. One of the things that's important to realize when you go out and you're sharing your life and you're talking to a neighbor or you're talking to a friend or you're talking to just whomever, don't make statements if you're trying to engage them. If I tell you, David, it's going to rain today, do you have to respond? You may be thinking something totally different, but you need not respond. You're looking at your thing, right? You're going to pull up your app. That's right. In, in fact, if I say to David, I'm sitting there, and I say, David, David what do you think the weather's going to be today? I may have already checked the forecast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I pause at the end of a question, what does that force him to do? To respond. The greatest pressure you can put on somebody is to ask them a question and then pause. It's very hard to pause and not say anything, especially if they don't want to respond because the pressure feels like it's on you, but it's not. It's on the other person. If you ask a question, you have really put the pressure on the other person. He responds and says, Terry, I think it's going to rain today. And I'm going, really? I thought it was going to be sunny, right? If I just told him David's going to be sunny, did I have any idea that he thought it was going to be rainy? If I go to somebody, you know that we're all sinners, Or even more of a statement, do you know that you're a sinner? They don't have to respond to that at all. Even though that's kind of a semi-question, that's not really a question at all. That's more of a statement you're making. And we turn people off with statements. We engage them with questions. And the example I use here is Philip in the eunuch. Remember when Philip is translated, he suddenly finds himself, he sees this Egyptian on his chariot, and he walks up to him, and what's the Egyptian doing? Reading what? Re reading Isaiah. Philip doesn't say, you know, you need to accept Jesus in your life. That's really what you need to do today. That's not a question that engages. That's more of a statement. See, we think we're asking a question. Instead, Philip says, what does Philip say? Do you understand what you're reading? And then he pauses. If the guy would have said, I fully understand what I'm reading, and I know that I need to, you know, that Christ needs to be a part of my life, and boom, 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 Philip would have gone, amen, praise the Lord. He'd have just encouraged him, right? But the eunuch said what? How can I un unless someone shows me or explains it to me? So Philip hops up, says, <laughs> I'm all in. And he shares where he is in Isaiah, and then through that leads him to what he really needs that day is Christ. And at the end of that, the eunuch says, well, there's some water. Can I be baptized right now, right? And we'd all go, we'd like to have those experiences. And sometimes we do, but most of the time not. But we forget to use a proper question in engaging people. So here's my question to you. If you were going to engage your neighbor in a discussion, for some reason it comes up, you're just, it's the right time or whatever, how might you engage your neighbor 
in a spiritual discussion without potentially turning them off? How can you engage instead of turning off? What would you say? What question would you use as your opening question? Knowing we don't want to make a statement, they add nothing. Questions are everything. What would we do? Yes? There you go. That's very good. Wasn't the sunrise? That's a non-invasive. Wasn't the sunrise a beautiful example of the glory of God? And then you pause and you look at him with a, I'm looking for a response from him, right? And you can, even if he doesn't respond, you can see in their face and in their body language, like I'm open to that thought or don't talk to me about that, right? Or it might be, yeah, but I had a bad night. Or it might be, oh, yeah, it was glorious. And, and you know, it, but depending on their response, it helps you understand what your next point of reference should be. If they seem into it, you can do a little more down that road. If they seem like, boy, I had a really bad night, so the sunrise meant nothing to me, you have to go a different path. Does that make sense? If you don't ask the right question, though, you'll go down rabbit holes and you'll not be helpful to your neighbor. If they say, hey, I, I really uh, you know, had a bad night or whatever, it might be that you then lead them to the point of, wow, I am sorry that that happened. You know, I have bad nights, too. And again, maybe you have some empathy there. And, but even back to the same point then, but you know, it still is really nice when I have a bad night to see a glorious sunrise. And sometimes you can get the person's attitude to change around and they'll go, wow, I never thought about that. Yeah, it was a glorious sunrise. And can you imagine, and, and, and as a follow-up question, it might be, um, you know, the, 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 the world is, really is talking about this whole idea of intelligent design. What do you think about the concept of intelligent design. That's not saying what do you think about God. That's asking them what they think about what the secular world is talking about. And if they say, you know, the intelligent design, no, I think it's all random, you know how you have to go. If they say, you know, the intelligent design, something had to have done something because there's just too much logic to the world, you go, oh, there's an opening. And you could say, see, once, once they've responded, you can make a statement again, and it might be, yeah, you know, that's exactly why I feel so strongly about God. He's the intelligent design that the world talks about. And then what do you do after you make a statement? No, after a statement, you always, always ask another question because a statement will not elicit any response. I can make a statement. So I start with a question. They say something back. I'll say a statement to that to affirm or change the direction or whatever. And then I'll always ask another question. Always. Because when I ask a question, what does that require? A response from the person. And if you begin to understand the power of that interchange of question first, pause until they respond, Make a statement either affirming their response or changing their direction and then always asking another question and then pausing again. You can fully control the conversation. I do it every day at work. It does not come natural. I had to learn how to speak in this manner because as engineers, we think that what we have to say is much more important than how we say it. And that is a very untrue statement. How I say something is extremely important. And I've learned to speak in questions, not one question right after another, although my wife wouldn't agree with that. She thinks I, I get to, by the way, with my wife, I really have to practice this. It's really difficult because she gives me three questions and that's it, no more. So I have to be very particular in the three questions I'm gonna ask because she says, that's it, no more, no more. So at work, I don't have that problem, but I do make a question. Somebody will come to me with something, and instead of, they'll, they'll ask me for some help in a technical problem, I never tell them the answer. Never. 
I always ask them a question because I need to see where they're coming from. Are they a freshman level understanding? Are they a sophomore level understanding? Do they understand more? Because if they're freshman level, I got to start with basics. If they're at a senior level, they, they don't need basics from me. They need some better understanding of this particular issue. I ask a question. They'll say something. I'll make a statement to them. And then guess what I do every time? Ask another question. So, so what's wrong with asking a question with a question? So, so, so that's, a good, that, that's a good question. To, why not answer a question with a question? And that's okay presented correctly. If we're not careful, though, especially when we're talking to somebody that may be a little adversarial in their thinking with us, it feels like an argument instead of a discussion. So when somebody asks me a question, I often will make a little statement to that question, but then I will always ask a question back. Because I've answered yours, I get the right now to ask another one. But that is a subtle piece that sometimes a question with a question is the right thing. Often I find it to be adversarial if we're not careful if it starts off in that way. So again, I want you to think through how to engage the world in questions. And I've written several down here. One that I have found particularly useful in giving, uh, getting somebody engaged is I ask the question to them. First off, we're discussing something, and I'm just in the middle of nothing, you know, and I just decide, Lord says, hey, let's have a little spiritual talk, and I'll go, can I ask you an interesting question? I pause. I get a response from the person. I've never had somebody say, no, I don't want to hear an interesting question. Never. <laughs> I have never had that as a response. I've always had the person say, well, sure. Because I'm, you know, whatever. I guess I, I'm not so offensive that they think I'm going to beat them over the head with something. So I'll then say, what do, you, what do you think happens to us after we die? What do you think happens to us after we die? The response to that question has been, and, and by the way, I learned this from another man who was a great evangelist. It really stuck with me. It was one of the, I did not come up with this, but it has been my moniker. It really works well for me. And I'll go, depending on their response, I've had people say, well, you know what? I just think it ends. That's it. We die and we're gone. I know exactly where that person is spiritually. I know exactly what the conversation needs to be if we're going to have any more conversation about that. Or the person says, well, I, you know, I think we get to go. I, I, I think we get to go to heaven. Or I think there's a heaven we live afterwards. Tells me a lot more about where that person is spiritually, right? And if they say something like, well, I think we get to go to heaven. What might you say? How might you engage? Remember, make a little statement and then ask another question. What might be the statement you make to that? Well, that's the question. That's the question that you ask. So the statement I make is, oh, that's an interesting idea. Like they had an idea that I hadn't thought of before, right? And I'm thinking, no, I'm going down this path with you. But I go, well, that's an interesting idea. How do you think, not, not you personally, but how do you think somebody gets to go to heaven. That's exactly the right question you're asking for. You're sucking them into a conversation they may not want to have, right? But how they respond to that, what, what do you think their typical response is to an unsaved person? This was my response in my teens and early 20s before I came to Christ. How do you think most people respond to How do you think we get to go to heaven? I've been... Good, and we even get better at it. I've been really good compared to, <laughs> you know, compared to the normal populace, I'm not too bad. That's the way I thought we got to go to heaven. I grew up, uh, you know, in a Presbyterian church where that was kind of, the, the, that was the way it was implied, you know, on the scales of justice, God's going to look at you, and, and, and that's the way. And so you can lead somebody in a front-end conversation. Now, there are people that have been given the gift of evangelism that are way more bold than I am. I am much more logical. I am not the bold type, but I know people. There's this lady that when she meets somebody, it's not, hi, how you doing? She comes up and she goes, do you know Jesus? 
And I, she just has that spirit about her that it's not offensive. She asks every person that that she doesn't know, Did, do you know Jesus? And she leads many people to Christ that way. And I'm going, boy, that's not my style. Maybe that's your style. That's just not my style, right? I, I don't know why, but, but that's an okay opening question if that's what God has given you. You need to think about your own life, your own circumstances, the person you're talking to, but you need to have in your pocket, you're a workman who is prepared and knows how to correctly handle the word of truth, and you've practiced it, and you've thought about it, and you've got this set of conversations that you can walk through, and I would suggest, again, questions a way to do that. Does that make sense to anybody? That you need to be prepared with those so that you can walk through the logic of it. Um, so I've written down other ones. Uh, all this talk about you know, intelligent design, I ask you about this. Do you think there really is a God? That's, a, that's another way to ask that same question. All this talk about intelligent design. Do you think there really is a God? And again, you're not trying to predispose yourself. You're just asking a question in, in, within a conversation of people having interesting conversations. Uh, if I've got somebody that I think might be a Christian, anybody got people that they think might be a Christian, but you're not for sure? You interact with them? maybe at work or whatever. How many people have somebody that way? That you go, I think they're a Christian, but I'm never really sure. I'm just not quite sure. I always ask that person, how's your walk with the Lord going? How's your walk with the Lord going? Because I'm assuming that they're a Christian. That's kind of the way we interacted. What kinds of answers might I get back from that? Well, it's going really good and, oh, okay. It, it sounds like you really, you know, what things have you been doing in your life recently? You engage them to see if they really know and know that they know why the Lord is it. And those people, again, I've engaged many people that way that they go, yep, I'm doing really well. And then I can get really specific of, you know, isn't it, you know, when did you come to Christ? When did you accept Christ? Because they're into that. I'm hearing that vibe, and we can have that conversation. But if somebody goes, well, my walk's not very good, and, you know, I'm, I'm just having trouble, and, uh, and, and you get the vibe that it's more of a, they look Christian, they talk Christian, but they don't know Christ. Therefore, they don't have that spirit within them. You start to see that in that question and their response to you, and it helps you interact with them to maybe take somebody along. See, here, here's the problem. Here's the problem that we have. When we come to Christ, we say that everybody is either binary. They're either unsaved, they're either saved or they're, unsaved right or not saved unsaved here saved here that's the way we see it it's very binary but in fact although that's a binary point of our life that's a hinge point that we come to salvation at a specific point and some of us aren't even sure that specific point we just know that we pass through that at some point and we are definitely on the saved side and that's okay too you know these people that say i know the minute the second and so forth sometimes that's bothersome to me because I recognize that many people go, no, I know I'm saved, but I can't tell you it was about, you know, about this point. Anyway, but you come over to here, and we know that Scripture talks about maturity in Christ, right? And so there are people who come to Christ, and we call them a one on the scale of maturity. And then you get to a Billy Graham, and you got a ten, right? <laughs> and at least that's what our generation you know, kind of compares everything to, to, to Billy Graham, that type of thing. And... We realize that we're somewhere in between that scale. Am I a two? Am I a three? Am I a seven? Am I an eight? And there's a whole study that we do on, on that walkthrough to understand where you are in your walk. But just as there's a scale there, there's also a scale of being unsaved. There are people who are really unsaved. They are down here somewhere about a minus 10. Anybody know somebody like that? I have, I have a neighbor who's an avowed atheist, avowed atheist. We've interacted a lot. And so when I interact with him at a 10 level, a minus 10 level, the best I could possibly hope for is to maybe get him to a minus 9. But you know what? A minus 9 looks really unsaved still. And so I don't see that I'm doing much good. Does that make sense? And versus somebody who's maybe a minus 2 is talking the right things, seeing to be the right things, they're prepped to really 
get the gospel message in its full glory to come to Christ. But very seldom, there are people that are minus 10 that come to Christ. But, I mean, in, in that instant. But most people transverse through some period of time of trying to figure things out. Marty talks a lot about that. People that come to church here are unsaved that will walk them through until they get to a point that the Spirit lays it upon them and they accept Christ. So now the question is, if you got the right opening questions, if you got those things to get people interacted, what are you going to say for the gospel message itself? What are you going to say? Well, I have given you, in your notes there, three basic ways that are currently being used, that have been talked about over the last 30, 40 years. One of them is the uh, Bill Bright's uh, Campus Crusade, um, the, the Four Spiritual Laws. How many of you know the Four Spiritual Laws? You've seen that little book. That's a great little piece. Another one is the Roman Road. How many of you heard of the Roman Road? It's all about Romans. Another one that I put there is what I call the bad news, good news. You know, and, but it comes down to four simple things, as you guys know. The four simple things, remember? The, the, why do we have the good news? Because God wants a close personal relationship with us, and he can't have it because of sin. So the bad news is we're all sinners. Romans 3, 23. Fall of sin, fall short of the glory of God. More bad news. What's going to happen because you're a sinner? The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. So, bad news. We're all sinners. More bad news. Death is your future. But the good news is, because God wants a close personal relationship, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.5. And because he did that, he now has been the perfect sacrifice that God will accept. Therefore, we have a way back to have his close personal relationship. But it's a gift offered. God doesn't force it on us. We have to accept that gift. How do we accept the gift? By faith through grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's the simple gospel, right? Bad news, good news. The Roman road just takes and adds some more Roman verses to it. Bill Bright takes the same idea, just expands it a little more into some pieces. I just like the very simple. Bad news, we're all sinners. Bad news, you're facing death. Good news, Christ died before you even knew it. You got a way out. The more good news, you don't have to do anything in the way of works to get there. But you must, by faith, accept that this is the way. How do we know that we've been saved? I always use John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he who hears my voice, did you hear the voice? Yes, I heard, I read scripture. Did he who hears my voice, or I heard God speaking through nature, like Romans 1.20 talks about, and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He is no longer condemned. He has passed from death into life. It tells us what happened to that person. I always use that as the assurance of salvation. But... That message, that good news, you should know those basic scriptures. And I've given those to you to study, but I want you to know it's the interaction. It's the life evangelism. It's the understanding how to engage the world in our good news that I think is what's lacking in practice. So here's your assignment. This is a tough assignment, but I can't tell you how fulfilling it will be for you. I want you to write down, I want you to go home, and I want you to write down a list of people that God has written on your heart to say, I really want them to hear the good news. Whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a long-term friend, whether it's a business associate, I don't know how long that list is. My list was about 10 long when I got put this on me. And most of it was business associates in my business place. And, and, and around the country because I dealt with a lot of vendors. But it was people that I had grown close to, but I had never, and they knew that there was kind of something different about me. They knew I was a little weird, but they, they had never shared the gospel. And I did this. I made sure that I, I had a firm grasp of how I wanted to share the good news, just the, this bad news, good news is how I did it. And every one of them, when I was with them the next time, and I specifically laid out to have an appointment, divine appointment with them over the next three or four months, 
every time I said, and I looked at them, because again, we were pretty good friends or we were a neighbor who knew each other pretty well, and I'd say, Bob, I need to share something with you. I don't want you to ever look back and say, Terry never told me. I like you too much as a person to have that guilt on my conscience that I didn't tell you. I want you to know what I base my life on. You can make your own decision as to whatever you want to do. I just don't want you to ever be able to say you didn't tell me. And then I said to them, here's what I base my life on. Here was the problem that I saw. I thought I could be just a good person, and I got to go to heaven. I found out that's not the case. God doesn't accept that. I understood the fact that I was a sinner. I had no problem with that at all because I knew I did bad things. I did not realize, though, that those bad things were going to keep me forever from ever being around God. And I said, but what I discovered is that God had a plan so that I didn't have to be perfect. And that's the, I shared that in just a natural way. It was about a two-minute piece, and I told every one of those people why I had a hope that was in me. I didn't ask them for a commitment at the end. I probably should have been stronger, but I said... I want you to know why I do what I do. You can, if you want more information, if you want to talk more about this yourself, and every one of them, I, I didn't have one person say, I'm, I'm ready to accept Christ right now. Not one. I didn't have any one of them say, I'm already a Christian, because I knew they weren't based on how they live. But they all said, that's really interesting. Can we talk about it some more? I went, okay. And in our... Ever since then, whenever we got together, they knew that was going to be part of my conversation with them. That opened up the floodgates to have spiritual conversation with this group of people. And through the years, some of them came to Christ. I've got some stories. There's one man that came to Christ that I said, there is no hope, Lord, that that man will ever come to Christ. Anybody have one of those? I thought there's no hope. He comes from a Southeast Asia family. They're so into themselves. And this guy's so successful and so smart, and he doesn't see that need. And God broke his heart. He's become a great Christian man. God can break anybody's heart. He can break mine. He can break anybody's. We've gone way too long. Has this been helpful at all? I just want you to know the basics. Yes, David. Refreshing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for giving us the basics in such a way that we can all understand it. Help us to become good workmen who correctly knows how to handle the word of truth. But I pray more than that. I pray that we go home and we write down our lists of people that we're never sure that we've ever really explained why we do what we do. Help us to sit down with them with nothing more as a friend to friend to say, I don't want you to ever look to me and say, I didn't tell you. And out of this outpouring of our own love for our friends and neighbors and uh, co-workers and so forth, who knows what harvest might come, but at least those people will never look back and say, wow, they never told me. Lord, we'll give you the praise and the glory for that which you do in us and through us. And all God's people said, amen.